Today I'll be reading a paper titled The X and Y of Jerome Bruner's Curricular Theory. This paper was written for a course at Temple University about 10 or 12 years ago. You are a traveler crossing a boundary. Armed with only so much knowledge and experience, to what degree can you use what you know amidst the plight of the unknown in order to not just survive, but thrive and achieve your ultimate self? You are Jerome Bruner's student, and he's most concerned with how you will continually adapt and use what you've learned in order to be independent and self-sufficient. Bruner advocated curricula designed to A, spark curiosity as a means of embracing new information, and B, to require reflection to test the accuracy of that curiosity. Ultimately, this curiosity-centered approach advocated skilled teachers permitting the child to put things together for himself, to be his own discoverer, 1961, page 57. An introduction to Bruner's curricular work might as well begin with an overview of key concepts, terms, and themes. In order to examine his curricular views more deeply, it is best to consider some of his key views on learning and teaching. Let's begin. A foundational concept of education is his idea of the learner-thinker barrier which posits that only when actively using information does one become thinker, as opposed to just learner. In an attempt to explain this early in his career metaphor, Bruner, 1959a, offered that learning something in a generic way is like leaping over a barrier. On the other side of the barrier is thinking, page 24. In order to use or manipulate information, one must organize it, which leads to thinking, or the proper reward of learning, page 25. Bruner, as a theorist, was feeling his way at this point, with his own early instincts, based in large part in recent cognitive science breakthroughs, which shape his most profound contributions to the study and enactment of education. Particularly insightful was the roles that discovery, inference, and intuition play in a student's movement from learner to thinker. Throughout his career, Bruner has advocated the power of taking risks, making predictions, testing such hypotheses against facts, and learning from discrepancies. Endlessly, he reiterates a simple yet profound idea. Students must feel that they are safe to take chances and to fail, and that error can be instructive. Such a stance enables a teacher to utilize an inquiry approach that asks students to use what they know to make inferences about what might happen next. Instructionally, in a story, in a learning sequence, in order to shift learning, ideally, from passivity to discovery and, at minimum, to active integration. By using recently acquired knowledge combined with background knowledge, the student can get maximum regenerative travel from the material to which he has been exposed. 1959b, page 34. Bruner stresses this utility of knowledge as the key learner-thinker prerequisite, where travel represents not what one has learned, but what one can do with what one has learned. That is, what can we generate based on what we know? Bruner, 1959, argued that learning by doing best facilitates this process by countering the passivity gap often created by transactional modes of teaching. By thinking, I mean the operation of going beyond that which has been given to that which might be likely. Any operation that involves going beyond the information given is what constitutes the link between the isolated learning of the teaching situation 
to the requirement of action based on what has been learned. It is such action, these operations of going beyond, that constitutes the condition of getting travel out of what has been learned. Page 34, 35. At this point, Bruner had few practical methods designed to pull this off. He was a cognitivist, not yet a curricularist, but he knew activity was key. What's interesting about this type of inquiry approach is how it engenders a go-for-it spirit in students. The going beyond to get travel element is not meant to be random. It's a means of testing out, of taking chances, and speculating, and it's quite active. It doesn't simply end with the chance taking. There is accountability, but it's different than penalty. In Bruner's spiral model, which evolved slowly over his career, the student's inferences are compared with the official curriculum as revealed by the teacher. These comparisons are reinforced each time the teacher circles back later in a more powerful, more generative, more structured way to understand it more deeply with however many recyclings the learner needs in order to master the topic and turn it into an instrument of the mind. A way of thinking, Bruner, 1991, page 145. This does not work with the curriculum of randomly assigned tasks or with activities that are thoughtlessly sequenced. Therefore, a curriculum geared primarily toward coverage is not what Bruner had in mind. Instead, he envisioned a somewhat methodical construction of key foundational principles that are frequently tested and refined over the course of an extended and shared inquiry. Later in this paper, I'll discuss Bruner's take on who should decide which foundational principles deserve attention, i.e., what's worth knowing and who decides. First, though, I'd like to briefly illustrate the spiraling Bruner had in mind. In an attempt to integrate new information, Y, into what we know about X, the teacher asks, based on what we know about X, what can we anticipate with Y? If Y doesn't meet our hypothesis, we need to spiral back and revisit our assumptions about X. Through such revisiting, we do one of two things. A, we form deeper conceptions of the principles that undergird X, so that our future predictions become simultaneously more refined and more adaptable as concepts that we may apply independently of the classroom. B, if our findings don't relate to X at all, we might make room for a conception of Y. To explicate this fully, it is crucial to examine the prerequisites for X and Y, as well as who should determine them. That examination will take up much of the remainder of this paper, but first, in order to more easily visualize Bruner's illustration for how one might make room for that new conception of why, let's quickly look at a practical example from a literature classroom. Here's where Bruner's inspiration becomes reality. The teacher of literature has a function akin to the teacher of empirical subjects, such as science and history, whereas the latter attempts to somehow provide a model, indeed in alternative models of the external world one encounters, it seems to me that it is the function of the teacher of literature to use the corpus of novels and drama to elucidate the internal world and its alternative expressions. A better exercise for the development of a tragic sense, without which there could be no sense of compassion, than to have to make an attempt at writing the last act of Hamlet, having read the others that preceded it. Bruner, 1959, B, page 37. Guiding this writing task is Bruner's philosophy of the function of literature instruction as an elucidation of internal worlds. It's important to start there. 
He speaks not of teaching the formal features of the tragedy, but of developing a tragic sense without which there can be no compassion. Linking a sense of tragedy to one's sense of compassion suggests that the X here is more than a student's conception of genre or narrative arc, or simply how the story should end, even though that may be what the student believes the X is. To the teacher, the X, i.e., the imaginative writing of the final act, is situated within the larger framework of the curriculum's foundational principles and questions. If we step back, though, the X can also be other things, including organizational structures, such as essential questions or sub-questions. Example, what is the function of the story? What can literature teach about ourselves and others? Why is Shakespeare so famous? How do writers capture inner worlds? Throughout a unit, semester, or school year, the X changes as students and their sense of working knowledge changes. Ultimately, though, for Bruner, the foundational X is rooted in a philosophy of the subject matter. Example, literature as mirror to inner worlds, and the key questions and principles that undergird such a philosophy. Footnote, note to self, C.R. Land, Threshold Concepts, C.L. Vygotsky, C.A. London, C. Chair Lesson. And crucially, in the end, students do incorporate the why, i.e. the formal understanding of tragedy, into their repertoire of knowledge as well. In conjunction with the X, the Y changes during the course of applied learning. The function of each, however, remains the same. The new, i.e. the Y, challenges or adds to conceptions of the old, or recently new, i.e. the X. The more the teacher, through the curriculum, spirals back to help students reflect on what they know and believe, the more the foundations that organize those beliefs emerge into view. Regardless of whether they are unearthed or are constructed, they are intended to match up with the very principles of knowledge selected as most important by the curriculum designers. All the better if those principles align authentically with the philosophical and pragmatic heart of the discipline. So who, for Bruner, decides the content of these variables? For one thing, the business of curriculum reform was far too serious to be left in the hands of the teachers. As he wrote in 1959, I do not wish to mince words. The educational and cultural level of the majority of American teachers is not impressive. 1959a, page 29. For Bruner, the object of learning is to gain facts in a context of connectivity that permits them to be used generatively. 1959a, page 28. This requires a design based on connectivity and the elaboration of organizational concepts. In his view, often it is the case that the teacher, like her students, has not learned the material well enough to cross the barrier from learning to thinking. 1959a, page 29. His spiral curriculum model, exemplified by Makos, Man, A Course of Study, 1965, was in fact designed by a team of experts representing a range of disciplines. For Bruner, field experts working in conjunction with child learning experts and hand-picked expert teachers should be creating curricula that are economical, prioritizing that which is most worth knowing. Essential questions, as well as the key organizational principles, are to be determined by this group who must solve formidable intellectual problems ourselves in order to be able to help our pupils do the same. 1971, 
page 126. What then is worth knowing and experiencing? The answer to this is first determined by Bruner's conception of an educated person. Only then is consideration of crucial and real content. Educated people are those who, by virtue of the teaching they have received, are able to go beyond what they have been taught to the formulation of their own identity and individuality. 1959b, page 39. It is not enough for schools to produce well-rounded, productive citizens. This is cliche. Such a goal invites mediocrity and banality, pablum rather than plight. 1959b, page 39. He wants thinkers who are trained to internalize the instructiveness of error in order to have an acquired sense of the varieties of the human condition. And he wants the controversy and conflict necessary for the artistically gripping presentation of human lives, dark themes, contradictions, and all. 1959b, page 39. The curriculum of a subject, then, is the vehicle through which such deep questions are pursued. And those questions should be determined by the most fundamental understanding that can be achieved of the underlying principles that give structure to that subject. Teaching specific topics or skills without making clear their context, and the broader fundamental structure of a field of knowledge is uneconomical because knowledge one has acquired without sufficient structure to tie it together is knowledge that is likely to be forgotten. Bruner, 1960, page 46, italics added. I italicized the field of knowledge in order to call into question Bruner's notion of expertise. When we realize that seeds planted by Bruner 50 years ago have borne out as revelations at the end of the century, see Wiggins and McTie's 1998 backward design, and Yancey's 1998 stages of reflection, we should conclude that this is a man worth listening to, even if this involves speculating upon what he might say today. So in the spirit of Bruner himself, I'm going to take a stab, my ex-hypothesis, at what he might say about a current curricular interest of mine. What should be the role of teachers in terms of curricular content and design? In a moment where so many teachers feel powerless under the weight of federal mandates and pressure to teach to tests, I would suspect that Bruner today would reject his own 1960 assertion that designing curricula in such a way is a task that cannot be carried out without the ablest scholars and scientists who must solve formidable intellectual problems ourselves in order to be able to help our pupils to succeed. 71, page 126. Bruner has learned a lot since 1959. And more importantly, he has taught the rest of us a new way of conceptualizing education. He realizes that we are listening, I believe, and has come to respect the nation's able scholars, teachers, who have been struggling to carry out this daunting task these last two decades, and under the circumstances have been doing it with much courage and skill and against enormous odds. Bruner, 1991, page 143. Bruner today, I assert, would argue that teachers should not only have more say over curriculum design, which should work collaboratively, occasionally across disciplines, as its primary archetypes. In fact, he'd probably enjoy talking to me about teachers and even students helping each other solve those formidable problems necessary for stellar curriculum design. 